The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Thank you to all of you who have sent in questions for John Gibbons. This being the 100th edition of his weekly spot, The Last Word in the Environment. And here's to the next 100 because there is no bigger issue facing mankind at present as to how we sustain our lives going into the future. And I know that'll outrage some of you who want to try and pretend that global warming is a myth and that this is all hype and having conspiracy theories about it. But anyway, there's a great question that has just come in from a listener. So, John, here's a curveball for you. Ask John Gibbons, what is the carbon impact of Joe Biden's visit? As a farmer in Mayo watching all these huge vehicles and helicopters that were obviously flown in by cargo planes, they must have a big output and they were all here before he's even set foot in Mayo. I doubt my cows have as much impact. Uh, good evening, Matt, and, and thanks very much, by the way, just to kick off uh, for hosting and you, you and the team on Today FM for hosting this this uh, particular slot. I reckon it's now the longest running environmental slot on Irish radio, so so uh, credit where due. Anyway, that's not in any way an attempt to dodge your, your curveball. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fair point. I mean, the carbon impact of, of Joe Biden and his entourage is significant. I suppose all we can really do, just in answer to your, your question uh, from your, your, your uh, correspondent at Mayo, is all we can really do is to tidy up our own backyard. I think, you know, the impact, for example, of a, of a, of a herd of cattle uh, is surprisingly large, a great deal larger than, say, the guy living in the, in the three-bed semi in Mayo as well. So I think we, we all need to be very careful not to get involved in this buck-passing thing where we can always find somebody who's doing worse than we are at any given time. And we shouldn't probably use that... As as, a, as an excuse for 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 us doing nothing, it's it, it, it's commonly wheeled out. And I would say as well, I mean, you know, we often talk about the impact of aviation, and we had quite a bit of a hoo ha. If you remember on Paddy's Day, with all the fuss about Irish uh, ministers flying around the world. Now, you know. I've spoken and I'm sure I will speak again many times about the impact of of aviation. It is significant. However, I think we have to allow our politicians on our behalf to do their business. And let's be honest, we don't expect them to go on on a ferry. We do expect them to move around swiftly. And I would say the same with this. Yes, there's an impact to this, but there's also a political impact to this. So is let's compare Joe Biden's trip to Ireland, you know, the 25th anniversary of the peace process, the many lives that have been saved because of the American and other political interventions. Now, let's weigh those up, if you like, in the carbon calculator and say, this isn't a jolly to the Caribbean. This is a working trip, Matt. So I tend to be a lot more uh, flexible around people who are actually doing their job when they get an aircraft like Joe Biden. Okay, here's one that says, I greatly enjoy John Gibbons' weekly slot on the environment, highly informative and challenging many of the myths which currently prevail. For the 100th episode, I'd like to ask John how we encourage the media in Ireland generally to report more responsibly on farm practices and aviation, given our growing carbon and methane emissions and really poor water quality. And this listener says, I think today FM has set a good precedent with the weekly slot. However, this awareness of uh, climate crisis needs to permeate all media. Okay, so reporting more responsibly in farm practices and aviation because an awful lot of our correspondents over the last 100 weeks believe that you're not responsible. Sure. I'm going to start uh, with aviation. And I think one thing I notice, and you see a lot of this, is that the media routinely reports on new airlines, new routes, new facilities, uh, subsidies going into regional airports. But the thing, Matt, I, I read these reports, and the thing that is constantly missing from our, our, our colleagues in business journalism is 
what are the carbon impacts of these decisions? I saw a release recently from one of our regional airports in Ireland and they were celebrating the fact that they'd got an electric vehicle for driving around the airport and describing this as a sustainable initiative. The problem with that is 95 to 98% of the emissions associated with an airport are to do with the planes coming and going. And the problem, as we know, is decarbonising aviation. That's a really thorny issue. So you find people uh, engaging in in, uh, limbo dancing to try and avoid the fact that aviation, hour for hour, kilometre for kilometre, is the most polluting thing that any human being can do, is to be on an aircraft for an hour or two or three or four. There's just no getting around that. And the thing I think we could do in answer to your correspondent is is I think our media need to engage in joined up thinking. And I put this to the business media. When you're reporting, as I think it's perfectly reasonable to report on Ryanair opening a new route, but you must also include what are the carbon impacts of that? And also who's paying for that in the short term and in the long term? Also, Many of these airlines are getting subsidies from local airports and from government in the form of of reduced taxes and no taxes and no VAT. And I'd love to see a lot more critical coverage of that. Okay, but the counter argument to that is that that encourages tourism, which brings a lot of money into the country. It also allows business people to come in and make investment in new jobs here in Ireland. And it also allows for the transport of various materials. That aviation has been a force for good in expanding the economy. Yeah, I think I think there's no question that aviation in itself is is it's a remarkable thing, quite incredible. We're, we're the only species of, of mammals, maybe apart from a couple of bats, that have actually mastered the air. So it's an incredible achievement for our species. But like so many things that we talk about, Matt, every Thursday on this show, it's really about. Not that aviation is a bad thing. Of course it's not. The problem is, basically, we've overdone it. And I'll take Ireland as a small island off the periphery of Europe, and I appreciate it's surrounded by water. However, 2019, 35 million passenger movements in and out of Dublin Airport. That's one airport, 2019, 35 million passenger movements. Now, how many of those do you think are vital to Irish business or to Irish public life? I would suggest... And this, again, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel, is saying that we probably need to cut aviation by about 90% over the next 20 to 30 years. I would suggest you could probably ease that load by 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90% without any genuine hardship, Matt, where vital flying, vital aviation is still is still allowed to happen. But a lot of the frivolous stuff, the, the weekends in Prague, the, 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 the boozy away weekends in, in Dubai, a lot of those we can really do without. OK, but just briefly on aviation as well. We also have the world's largest aviation leasing sector in the world is here in Dublin where many of the world's aircraft are owned and managed, more than a third of them bringing in enormous tax revenues to do all the things that you want to do to make the environment better. Is that not another example of the trade-off that has to take place? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think a lot of those aviation companies, as as you will know only too well, are in Ireland because of our extremely beneficial uh, tax regime. So I'm not sure they're necessarily here to make they Ireland better. They pay an enormous amount of tax. They pay an enormous amount of tax. And they, but they pay an awful lot of big salaries to people who then spend that money in the economy. They do. And the other aspect, and again, I know we're not going to have a, a set to on taxation, but the other aspect of it is the tax that they are avoiding in other jurisdictions is the tax that could be running schools, the tax that could be opening hospitals, 
models in other jurisdictions, Matt. So I'm afraid our gain tends to be very much at the cost of other jurisdictions. Okay, lots of comments coming in. What person on those cruise ships are making a vital journey? Uh, And then another one. How does that fella get his avocados on the table because they're not grown in his back garden? He loves the sound of his own voice. No, he doesn't. But do you eat avocados? I can't say I have uh, I'm not sure I imagine Matt just to stay with avocados for a second I think you'll find your, your typical avocado which maybe travels from South America is probably doesn't travel much further than your typical um, Irish uh, piece of uh, beef or, or dairy product that's heading off to China or the Middle East so people out there that are getting in a twist about avocados are, are they concerned about the fact that Ireland is exporting uh, huge amounts of probably our, of not our, yeah. and actually the other part of that question I asked you which wasn't just aviation it was farm practices yeah, I mean, again, it's a, top, a topic we've come to many times here and uh, there's no getting around it. In Ireland, we have a problem with our agriculture sector and the emissions from it. And I'll put this in simple terms before people say I'm down on the farmers again, right? For every euro of production, of food production in Ireland, we produce more carbon emissions for every euro of food that we produce than any other country in the European Union 27 so we are uniquely carbon inefficient at producing food. Now, I'm sorry that will cause some people to choke on their avocado toast, but they are the actual data produced by the European Commission. Now, we have danced backwards and forwards on this, but the fact remains that the most inefficient way to produce food for human consumption is to run that food through the digestive system of a ruminant like a dairy cow or beef cattle. Okay, listener wants to know, if you were in Minister Eamon Ryan's position, what are the three key actions you would take and implement? Right. Um, first of all, and this again is a pet peeve of mine, so and it's slightly outside Minister Ryan's, but it is in his colleague Catherine Martin's purview. So maybe if Catherine is listening, she might like to take it up for me. I would fund a national climate awareness media programme, Matt. I would put this, for example, the Irish government put about 20 million euros into the COVID media awareness campaign that went on to radio stations like this, that went on to bus sides, that was on TV, on the internet. Now, we regard to that as a life-saving measure. Yeah, they, but we had COVID coming out our kazoo, and rightly so, by the way. The government recognised it as an emergency. They went into emergency mode and we, the public, got the message because it was hammered through the media, through the messaging, through advertising, billboards, you name it. What we, we declared a climate and biodiversity emergency in May 2019 in the intervening four years. I challenge you or any of our listeners to name one government-sponsored ad actually telling us about this. In the meanwhile, we've had tens of thousands of ads promoting uh, conspicuous consumption, buying ever larger vehicles, flying to more and more destinations. Now, I'm not a bit surprised why the public are bewildered. The government, on the one hand, out of one side of its mouth says, oh, it's a climate emergency, lads, we need to do everything. And on the other side of its mouth, it leaves the whole thing to the market. We need to intervene in the market and we need to get that money out there and have it and help to jump a national conversation. That's number one. Number two, I would suggest... Uh, introducing an electronic national carbon ration. This will be connected to your PPS number, my PPS number. So what that means is that each of us is is allocated an, an annual carbon ration. Right? So every product that we buy or consume has would have a carbon count attached to it. So if you decide to take that jolly off to Dubai at the weekend... Ding, ding, ding. That goes onto your little carbon card. So Matt Cooper's card says, right, he's already used up 80% of his carbon allocation for the rest of the year. Now, when you expire, when you've used up your fair share of carbon for the year, beyond that, you start paying escalating levies. 
really significant levies. Now, what that encourages us to do is to operate within the amount of carbon that is available for our fair share. At the moment, Matt, countries like Ireland, we're grossly over-consuming our fair share of the world's available carbon budget, like grossly so. And to put that into numbers, the average Irish person accounts for about 13 tonnes of CO2 equivalent per person per year. That's over a tonne of carbon a month. Is that not a massive infringement on individual civil liberties? Well, they, they, this was this was a, a thought exercise, right, of putting me in, into, into politics. Of I course, don't know if anyone would vote for that, John. Well, you see, that's the thing. I'm not sure. This has always been the problem. And I agree with you. There is an element of it. Now, to me, what is the greatest infringement on our liberties is to be, to have our economy, our society destroyed. And that's the direction that we're heading, as you and I have talked about many, many times, the trajectory that the climate and biodiversity emergency takes us in not just, Matt, in our lifetimes, we're we're pushing on a little bit, but certainly in our adult children's lifetimes of hardship that we haven't seen on this island in two centuries. That's what we're... We're, we're, that's the legacy that over-consumers like us are leaving for our kids. So have I got the three key actions from you? No, I have one more to go for you, right? The last one, which I think is, I hope is a nice friendly one, I'd introduce a national interest-free loan scheme. At the moment, and I've done this myself very recently, uh, I went out and, and installed a heat pump. That required me ponying up quite a bit of money up front and then waiting and waiting and waiting eventually to get a grant, uh, eventually, I haven't got a jet, from the SEAI. The problem with this is most of us are very conscious of the upfront cost of something. Now, at the moment, if you decide to retrofit your house, you decide to put in a heat pump, you have to figure out how to get that money, you've got to borrow it, you've got to pay interest. Now, if we had a government scheme that said, we will give you an interest-free loan, and the European Union, by the way, is happy to back green loans for 5, 10, even 20 years, that way you're no longer faced with the upfront cost. And most of us, Matt, are scared off by the upfront cost. The fact, for example, that we might save 2000 a year uh, over, say, 20 years um, on, on an energy-efficient house, that that sounds great, but what sounds terrible is, oh, I want 50 grand up front. So we need to get past the upfront cost and move directly to it. And the government can intervene to do that really easily and at very, very low cost. OK, just before we go to the break, there's one listener suggesting, why don't we all just crawl into caves? Another one saying you would ruin our economy, bring us back to be like North Korea, while the rest of the world would be laughing at us if you were to implement your ideas. Well, there you go. I suppose it's a funny thing. Some of the people who are phoning in would describe themselves as conservatives, right? And they'd say, that guy is not a conservative. He's a whatever, something else. I'm a small C conservative. I want to conserve a living world. I want to conserve a world in which electricity works, in which we have clean safe drinking water. That's what I want for the future. That's what I want for my kids and grandkids if that happens in the future. People who blithely ignore the climate and biodiversity emergency, they're not conservatives at all. They're completely reckless with the greatest of respect. We'll be back with more from John Gibbons after this. Okay, it's a Last Word in the Environment special to mark 100 editions with John Gibbons. Here's to the next 100. And there's lots of questions we had sent in in advance. There's lots coming in as well now, as well as some adverse comments, John. But there's one that's come up in a few, and I'm going to bring this one, another perhaps one you hadn't expected. But this listener would love to know your thoughts on what they describe as overpopulation. It's the one thing rarely highlighted, but probably the leading cause of climate change across the globe. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Matt. Um, 
probably 30 or 40 years ago, overpopulation would have been regarded as the, the number one, if you like, um, climate or biodiversity impact. These days, it's no longer considered that. First of all, of course, population growth is continuing, but the rate has leveled off significantly, right? So it's, in fact, there was a recent assessment that said it's it's now, the we, we thought we would hit 10 billion by mid-century. That's now looking highly unlikely. So we are plateauing on population. In fact, many countries' population has already uh, stabilised. And in fact, in some Western countries, it's it's declining. That's the first thing to say. Second thing is what has now emerged as a far greater impact than population is in fact overconsumption in the rich parts of the world. Funnily enough, people in the rich parts of the world tend to want to point their finger at people, very low consumption people in poorer parts of the world and say, if these people stopped having having children, then we would resolve the climate emergency. Now, let me translate that again, if I might, into a statistic for you. Let's take our five million uh, high-consuming Irish people, on average, on a global on a global figure. Now, we're producing the equivalent carbon emissions of about 400 million people in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, so who's the impact there? The impact is about consumption. In fact, there, there's a little calculus that's done. It's called IPAT, which means impact equals population times affluence times technology. So the P in the middle of that ca- calculus is population, but it's one of a number of factors. Is it an important factor? For example, population pressures on sensitive landscapes? Yes, it is. But I'm very wary especially some of the recent commentary on population, and I'm not suggesting this is your correspondence, uh, shall we say, uh, motivation, but some of the recent correspondence has been an attempt, basically, by people in wealthy parts of the world to kick down and blame people, blame poor people, say that because a poor person who maybe is a subsistence farmer in Mali has five children to help them with their two-acre plot, that somehow they're driving climate change while we're flying around the world. We're, We're kidding. Another question from a listener. Will hydrogen-powered cars eventually be the driving method of choice, giving limitations on how far EV technology can go? Yeah, hydrogen is a, is a, an interesting technology. It's one that, for example, companies like uh, Toyota have backed and they've been kind of pushing it, mostly because they stalled really badly on electric vehicles. So they've sort of backed hydrogen. Hydrogen is a kind of a halfway horse, if you like, between the internal combustion engine and the battery engine. It's a different technology. Now, what matters most of all, first of all, you don't scoop hydrogen out of the air. You have to Unlike, say, harvesting solar energy, you literally scoop it out of the air. With hydrogen, you have to manufacture hydrogen. Now, you have different types of hydrogen depending on how you produce it. You've got blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, brown hydrogen. Much of the modern hydrogen that is being used is actually being used, is being manufactured by uh, natural gas, oil, nuclear, etc. Now, if you want clean hydrogen, well, then, of course, you have to manufacture it using renewable energy. Now, hydrogen production is very energy intensive. Now, if you fill a car with hydrogen, approximately, let me just have the, yeah, the exact numbers here. Um, yeah, about 20, no, but yeah, about 65% of the energy from that hydrogen will be lost in transmission for hydrogen into a car with a battery electric vehicle, um, less than 20%. So hydrogen is, it is, it has the advantage that when you burn it, all you, all you get as a byproduct is water vapor, but it it is not an intrinsically clean. It also has a couple of technical problems, Matt, and one of them is that it's a very slippery molecule and it leaks from tanks. Now, and it's also explosive. It could also be sorted out over time, and a lot of people get in touch regularly to say their biggest issue with the electric vehicles is the mining that is done for the battery parts. 
Yeah, I mean, mining uh, is an interesting one because there's mining done for everything. I mean, uh, there's mining done for iron ore. There's mining done for um, diamonds, for gold, um, for minerals of all kinds. Now, and again, all the impacts of all this mining all around the world are significant. Yet, strangely enough, the only time I've ever heard in recent times people express sudden concern about the fate of miners is when it comes to mining of ores for, say, lithium for battery vehicles. Now, that suggests to me motivated reasoning. And my one of my questions back to those people is, right, OK, so you think that's a bad idea. Are you prepared, for example, to forego the lithium battery in your mobile phone or in your laptop? Because there's far, today there's far more lithium being mined for mobile phones and laptops worldwide than there is for electric vehicles. So to me, Matt, it sounds like a little bit of a bogus argument. Listener says a report commissioned by the Dutch government released this week concludes that nuclear energy is too expensive and indeed superfluous. You've been a supporter of nuclear on this slot over the last 100 weeks. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, the particular report, it comes at it from an angle. There are all kinds of issues with the commissioning of new nuclear. It's very, very expensive. For example, there was a Finnish nuclear power plant, I think recently brought into commission, and it went savagely over budget. Now, you might say so is our children's hospital. So this running over budget isn't unique to nuclear, but it is a, it's a ferociously complex technology. Also, it tends to run into huge planning issues. Now, the question really is, we're probably never going to have a nuclear power plant in Ireland. I think that ship has, has sailed. Now, should we, for example, shut down existing nuclear power plants? So today, France, about 50, sorry, France has 59 nuclear power plants. They provide about 75% of France's total electrical power. And it's clean. From a carbon point of view, Matt, when you burn nuclear power, the, there is no CO2. It is absolutely clean. The problem, of course, is what you do with the nuclear waste. However, the amount of nuclear waste that a typical French family for a year to give them all their electricity from nuclear power would fit into a Coke can. So that is an engineering challenge to manage that waste. And yes, the waste does persist for a long time. But there's other forms of waste that persist for a very long time, too, that we don't manage. And the number one waste that we that persists for a long time that we don't manage, of course, is carbon dioxide. We simply dump it into the atmosphere. Every time you, you fire up your car, the smoke coming out the back, the carbon dioxide in there will be active in the atmosphere, Matt, in 500 years, in a thousand years time. And yet we're far more afraid of nuclear waste. Okay, another listener wants to know what can be done to reduce the amount of greenwashing that many companies are now engaged in? Do we need regulations on how products can be advertised? What's your understanding of greenwashing? Well, first of all, it's absolutely everywhere. I passed a armoured car on the way to the studio today, an armoured car, and it said it has solar panels apparently on the roof and it said it is safe and sustainable. I thought, here we go. This is a great big diesel-powered armoured car. So you can basically stick a green leaf or a fig leaf, as I call it, on anything. So greenwashing basically means companies making elaborate claims about the sustainability or the, the greenness or the recyclability of their products. Now, Changing your product life cycle or changing your, the type of business that you're in, that's really expensive, really difficult. What companies have found is they're shipping a lot of heat from, from people concerned about environmental impacts and they're responding. But mostly they're responding with greenwash designed to confuse. It's far cheaper to get in a PR company to dream up a green 
ad campaign than it is to retool your production line to produce genuinely green products. So we have a lacuna really at the moment where there is almost no regulation. And let me give you an example. Products are advertised in the Irish market all the time. They go up on TV, they go on radio and so on. Now, as long as they're within the normal realms of decency, right, they will be carried by the normal TV radio stations. Now, if those ads make outrageous claims about sustainability, which they frequently do, Land Rover is a case in point not too, not too long ago, complaints flood into the Advertising Standards Authority. Now, the Advertising Standards Authority, it sounds very fancy, but in fact, it's a self-regulation group within the funded by the advertising industry. Now, the Advertising Standards Authority, their job is to review the, the ads, but they do it, Matt, after the event. So the ad campaign is finished by the time the complaints have come into the Advertising Standards Authority. So let's just say the authority issues a ruling saying, naughty, naughty Land Rover, don't do that again. They say, oh yeah, grand, sorry about that, move on. The point is the damage is done. How we might solve this problem is, I would believe we should have a screen where experts review ads before they're broadcast, before they're put in newspapers. And there's another example recently on that as well, uh, in, a, in a national newspaper of an ad making elaborate climate claims for a Canadian fracking company. OK, but when you talk about greenwashing as well, an awful lot goes into what's called offsets. And I was fascinated by a piece that was in the Financial Times yesterday. It was a really big piece called The Illusion of a Trillion Trees. And it told the story of Mark Benioff of Salesforce, the chief executive, a major employer here in Ireland. Thousands of people work with it down in the North Docks. And he was on the sidelines of the COP26 climate summit in November 2021, declaring a huge moment because he said, we've lost three trillion trees on our planet, so we need to plant a trillion trees. And this would absorb 200 gigatons of carbon, the equivalent to two-thirds of existing human-made emissions. But when you read through the piece, you discover it is impossible to actually plant a trillion trees as an offset. We keep hearing about offsets as a way of mitigating the damage done by our behaviours. But they're either impossible to do or they're just talked about rather than done. Yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you a specific example. The London School of Economics did a major study on this two years ago and they said, quote, the sale of offsets to regulated polluters has substantially increased global CO2 emissions. What they're doing, Matt, is they're extending the social licence of heavy polluters to continue to pollute while pretending to be part of the solution. Even We even have oil companies pretending to be part of the solution, coming up with all manner of greenwash. Now, we've also saw that under the United Nations Clean Development Mechanism, they discovered that carbon offsets, they fail to reduce emissions. And another study found that half the carbon offsetting projects, uh, the funding that went to carbon offsetting projects, were for projects that would have run anyhow. And we've also seen, and you mentioned trees, there's a huge number of projects uh, in the US, for example, big companies like Apple and Microsoft offsetting their emissions by buying forests. And those forests, Matt, have been going up in flames over the last two to three years. Huge amounts of forestry in California has burned because of climate change. And what are those? So basically your carbon... uh, sequestration, your carbon sinks are going up in flames. You cannot simply bargain your way out of this. All of these are elaborate attempts to avoid the thing that nobody is prepared to do, and that is to cut 
their emissions. Okay, I'm going to read a question to you that you can answer when we come back from the break, but I'm just going to give an indication of where we're going next. And this listener says, does John think a plant-based diet should be encouraged? Subsidies to meat and dairy is using up too many resources. Tillage and growers of fruit and veg need to be supported and encouraged. Dairy receives too much support from our government and is intrinsically cruel. As it happens, the Citizens Forum on Biodiversity is also interested in encouraging a plant-based diet. We'll come back to John Gibbons on that after the traffic of Mark Hogan. So to conclude our special 100th anniversary edition of The Last Word of the Environment with John Gibbons, can you answer that question I asked you about a plant-based diet? Are you a vegetarian? No, I guess I'm what's called a flexitarian. Um, I've I've, uh, never never made the jump all the way to vegetarianism. Is that not hypocritical of you? I suppose, I, I think... If I were demanding that everybody stopped eating meat and stopped using dairy, yes, it would be. But I'm not. What we're looking for and arguing in favour of is a rebalancing, particularly in Ireland, of our really lopsided agricultural system. Uh, Like, for example, in Ireland, we have about 1% of our land is dedicated to horticulture, which is the lowest in Europe. Uh, Less than 2% Matt is in organic farming of any kind and that includes uh, beef or dairy. Less than 2% is organic. Organic is the the most nature-friendly form of farming that you can have. So what you have to say is if a country like Austria can manage 20% of its land to be farmed organically in a nature-friendly way, how come Ireland can only manage 2%? Is that not a failure of policy? And I'm not trying, by the way, to blame or demonise farmers. Farmers are logical people. I, I grew up on a farm. I'm a farmer's son. Farmers follow the market signals and the market signals, in my view, have been leading them in the wrong direction. So to answer your question, do we need to move towards a, a, a lower meat diet? Yes, we do. We know that we overconsume, even from a health point of view, we overconsume meat in Ireland. It was interesting that the recent Citizens Forum or Citizens Assembly on biodiversity did actually highlight this whole thing about moving towards a less a meat-based diet and less dairy-based, given that it was a widespread uh, group of people from Ireland. But I'm going to give you another couple of questions linked together. Don't volcanoes admit far more carbon dioxide each year than human activities? So what's all the fuss about human actions and climate change? And linked to that, we also know that climate change has happened in the past when there were no humans around. So why should we be worried about it happening again now? Isn't change natural? Sure, let me start with the volcanoes. Volcanoes in a typical year... Uh, volcanoes or human emissions are between 60 and 100 times greater than all the carbon emitted by all the world's volcanoes in a year. So translating that into numbers, volcanoes are the equivalent of maybe, what, about 3% of human emissions. So back in the day, Matt, before humans were the dominant uh, geological force on Earth, yes, volcanoes had had something of an impact on our climate system. But those impacts have been drowned out by the massive impacts related to uh, human-induced warming. That's number one. Uh, The second part of your question, has climate change happened in the past? Of course it has. And we... For people who say that, who, and sometimes I hear it as almost as a gotcha. The first question is to these folks, who do you think figured out that climate changed in the past? We didn't read it in the Bible, that's for sure. It was figured out by a group of scientists called paleoclimatologists. These are specialists who've looked at the scientific evidence into the fossil record, at ice cores and so on, and have been able to break down reliable instrumental readings for 800,000 years of Earth history. And we know that in that time, the, 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 the climate has, has 
lurched backwards and forwards from ice ages to interglacials, interglacials to ice ages. Now, the one thing I'll say about these is that these are very unpleasant times to be around. You do not want to be around during an ice age because during the last ice age, for example, uh, humans were reduced to uh, tiny numbers because so much of the earth was uninhabitable. Now, at that time, humans and other animals simply fled away from the poles and towards, towards the tropics. Now, so the most important thing to say is, yes, climate changes over time, but it changes, Matt, in, what are, in response to what are called forcings. In other words, what is the thing that is causing it to change? At the moment, we dump between 35 and 50,000 million tonnes of heat-trapping gases into an effectively a closed system every year as a result of human emissions. That is the forcing. That is the thing that is causing the climate to change. Now, those climate changes in the past were extremely unpleasant. The climate change that we're heading into now, we're already in an interglacial. We're exiting a period of Earth history called the Holocene, which is about 10 to 12,000 years of incredibly stable climatic conditions. We're heading into what's called a super interglacial. In other words, a hothouse Earth period. Humans have never existed through a super interglacial. So we've already exited the Holocene. Does that mean we're doomed? No, it doesn't mean we're doomed. It means that we're heading out of the period in which humans have always existed. If you take that 12,000 years that I've just described since the end of the last ice age, in that time, global temperatures have never been more than one degree centigrade, average global temperatures above what we call pre-industrial. We're now at about 1.1, 1.2 degrees. We're rapidly exiting the stable phase. Now, you might say at that that level, for example, we get things like Europe having its hottest summer in 500 years last year. That's just one tiny example of what happens as you begin to ratchet that temperature up. The problem is, if we continue on our current path, we won't stop at 1.5 or 2 or 3. We will end up at something like 4 degrees. Now, Four degrees, Matt, above pre-industrial. Let me explain that in the simplest terms I can. During the depths of the last ice age, the average surface of the Earth's temperature was about four to five degrees cooler than today. So if you can imagine the heat equivalent of being under three kilometres of ice, that's what we're heading into. Now, we don't have to get there. Why do I come on to a show like this every Thursday? It isn't to say we're doomed. It's to say, guys, we have the evidence. We need to make the actions. Two questions to finish. What can the average person do in their daily lives to have the biggest positive impact on climate change? To me, the number one thing is be political. And again, it's a small p political. That means get involved, get engaged, get active. Do not give in to despair and doom. Do not give in to cynicism. It's way too late to be cynical and doomy about this. We have to be active. So, for example, uh, in Ireland, very few people are members of... um, nature NGOs. Join one of them. Get involved. Go to their meetings. Support them. Sign up. That way, Matt, you telling your politicians, and I don't care what hue they are, whether it's Sinn Féin or the Greens or the, 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 the monster raving party, it doesn't matter. Let your politicians know that you care about biodiversity, you care about ecology, you care about climate, and most importantly, you care about your children's future, and you insist that they do the same. One last one. Really enjoy your weekly slot John, we're wondering if there are any good news stories in our battle to save the planet. Are we doing anything right? I think, well, I'm delighted to finish on a positive note. I genuinely am. And yes, we are. For example, 20 years ago, I remember reading about scoffing 
about uh, solar panels and wind turbines. They were considered to be a joke. Now, what we've seen, for example, Matt, over that 20-year period, um, the cost per, per kilowatt produced from solar energy has reduced by between 95 and 98%. You and I could now afford to go out and put the solar panels that used to be on the space station, you can now put them on the roof of your house. These are There's incredible technological improvements that we've made. The other thing that I believe has changed really dramatically is awareness. Now, awareness is still tracking behind action, but at least we have awareness. Ten years ago, we were having nonsense argument, is it real, is it not real? I think we've mostly, apart from a couple of hard shows, we've moved beyond that and we've moved into the difficult but really challenging phase of what do we do? We're the consequential generation. We're the last generation, Matt, that will have any influence over the trajectory of the Earth's climate for the next thousand years. So we're, whether we like it or not, we're a special generation. So let's not blow it. John Gibbons, 100 not out. We look forward to the next century of appearances here on The Last Word of Today FM. Thank you for being with us. Thank you to all the listeners who sent in questions in advance and more questions and comments over the last hour. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.